How do you respond to someone who challenges the very foundation of your profession? What do you say to someone who tells you that your methodology not only is wrong, but that it shouldn't exist in the first place? Well, stay tuned and find out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 99 of the Resilient Journey podcast, presented by the Resilience Think Tank. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this week I'm joined by business continuity professional, antagonist, and overall contrarian, Mark Armour. In this episode, Mark explains adaptive business continuity, and he tells me why he doesn't like BIAs, plans, or documentation. And despite all of that, we actually agree on a few things along the way. Yeah, I'm as surprised as you are. Mark tells me that his approach would forego the methodology in favor of principles. It's a friendly and respectful debate. Come join us. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you here. We were just talking uh, before we started how we have known of each other for a long time, but this is our first time actually meeting, so uh, I'm glad you were able to take some time for us. Briefly uh, introduce yourself, if you wouldn't mind. Certainly. Uh, first and foremost, thanks very much for having me on. I'm looking forward to speaking with you, Mark. Um, I am currently Senior Director of Global IT Governance, Risk, and Compliance, uh, a title I've held for two years. Uh, I was promoted from Director of Business Continuity, position I held for eight years, um, so 10 years total at Brinks, Worldwide Leader in Cash Management and Digital Retail Solutions. Uh, before Brinks, I worked for Santander Bank, I worked for Bank of America, and Countrywide Home Loans. Uh, interesting facts. I've got two dogs. I've got four cats. I have six guitars and I have one beautiful wife. Nice. Um, probably we can edit that if you want to. You may have gotten that order wrong. Did you want to start with the wife? <laughs> probably so. Well, maybe if she doesn't listen to this, she won't notice that. She probably doesn't listen to the podcast. We're probably safe. Good point. So I had sent you over some questions and one of the follow-up questions I wanted to ask you and you, you didn't push back on it was you're kind of accustomed to people disagreeing with you. <laughs> what what gives you that impression, Mark? <laughs> I would I would say yes. And I would even say I'm fine with disagreements. Uh, I tell I say, say to people, bring me your reasoned arguments for traditional business continuity planning based on merits sound evidence, and I'm more than happy to debate and discuss. Uh, where I have challenges, I think, is, is people who maybe take my stance personally. Um, I wholeheartedly support the mission of business continuity and organizational preparedness. I feel like I'm a, I'm a strong advocate for the profession. Mm -hmm. I genuinely want to help people and, and my fellow practitioners in the preparedness disciplines. Um, the analogy that I give people is... Um, we're all going to the same destination, right? I'm going to get there my own way. Other people may want to board the traditional business continuity bus. Um, and I'm simply saying, I have doubts about that bus. I'm not sure about the engine, the, the, the person who's behind the wheel, even the route you're taking to get there. And what I would say is, you know, if I'm wrong, no harm done. I, in my view, I'm only doing my duty as a business continuity and preparedness professional and asking the tough questions. Where's the evidence that that bus can get you where you're going um, as efficiently and effectively as you as you need to? Um, as, as professionals in this arena, we should be asking those questions. We shouldn't be simply taking whatever we're told at face value. We should be asking for evidence. We should be asking for people to back up 
those statements. And then I would say, if if I'm right, then really the only people who I think have a legitimate reason to be angry with me are the people selling the tickets to board the bus. That's really interesting. And see, look at us. We're agreeing on something right out of the gate. And I didn't expect it to, <laughs> to, to have the agreement outnumber the disagreement even early in the game, but that's okay. That's not uncommon. Um, I, I like what you said there. Um, and I'm very interested to know more about why you think some people take this so personally. I think I think people kind of conflate the mission of business continuity and resilience, right? The objective of of building better prepared, more resilient communities and organizations with the means that we use to achieve that mm-hmm. mission. Um, and, and I think I think you know, understandably, some people are very invested in the how and the methodology. They've participated in certification sessions. They've probably spent money to to get certified and to pass tests and all that stuff. So I can see how it might feel that, you know, an attack on the, you know, or questioning the approach, it might be an attack on that investment. That's very interesting. All right. Well, let's get into it because you talk a lot about adaptive business continuity. Yeah, uh, you at one point called it a groundbreaking concept with the potential to change the practice of business continuity globally. But my understanding of it is, and I don't claim to be an expert of adaptive, uh, but you say that it's quite different than what I would refer to or what you might refer to as traditional business continuity. So, can you summarize the main differences? Sure, sure. I mean, there's, there's really one fundamental difference, and it, it really is kind of the, the, the foundation of, of traditional versus versus adaptive. The traditional business continuity approach is grounded in methodology, right? It it starts with the business continuity life cycle as its foundation. Adaptive, by contrast, is really based on principles. We don't don't define a life cycle or a a set of methods or a set of actions or deliverable. Um, How I would, the analogy I would use to describe these differences is I think the traditional business continuity approach attempts to give people a a map through the wilderness. And my understanding of, you know, what we're doing is to prepare people to work their way through the wilderness based on skills and capabilities. And if you lose your way, the map's not going to provide you any benefit. What I'd much rather do is give people the skills to navigate their way through and out of the wilderness. All right. So one of the main differences as I understand it, is the adaptive approach will remove the BIA from the mix. I don't think you don't like BIAs. Is that a fair way to put it? (laughs) Is it, is it that obvious? I suppose I've I've, I've stated that. All right. Um, So, so here's where we're going to have our, our, our biggest difference because I am a huge fan of BIAs. Now, do I do them like, you know, my colleague next door? Maybe not. So let's talk about that. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's dig into that a little bit. What is it about the BIA that you're not in favor of? So so let me preface this by saying when I started my adaptive business continuity journey, yes, eliminating the BIA was kind of the foundational principles that we advocated. In the years since, it's become obvious to me, it it should have been (laughs) even beforehand, but you really can't eliminate the business impact assessment from the business continuity lifecycle. It's, it's foundational to the rest of the work that's done in that methodology, right? You need a business impact assessment to inform your recovery objectives and then the strategies that you need in order to achieve 
those objectives. Yeah, so let me jump. Let me jump on that. So you're you're right. It's foundational. It yeah. gathers the data that I need for everything else. It gives me insight into what's important to the business. It even helps me identify risks. And I don't want to talk about risk yet. We'll talk about that later because I know that's another yeah. uh, kind of a key phrase <laughs> for you. I don't want to trigger you, um, <laughs> right? But so it is foundational. But you started down the the path there, and I'm going to let you finish. You said it's foundational to the methodology. Exactly. You think there's a problem with the methodology, so so I'll allow you to continue that. I mean, that's that's the essential problem, right? So, in fact, recently I've I've stopped talking about the business impact assessment and really started talking about the methodology. I talk about plans and my desire to eliminate plans and documentation from what we do. Um, and that's I guess that's the fundamental issue is I feel my understanding of the methodology is it really is a means to arrive at a documented set of procedures, a plan, if you will, for how you're going to respond and recover. Okay, and, so I'm going to interrupt you here, and, and I apologize for that. That, that no, problem fine. So to summarize what you've said so far, we have no BIAs and we have no plans, we have no documentation. Yeah. <laughs> so what's what's left? What's What are you doing? Uh, you're building capability. Okay, walk me that, through that. It. That that's that's simple. You you can have capability without a plan. Could a plan augment capability? Sure, but I think you can have capability without a plan. But you can also have a plan and have no capability. I would much rather the former than the latter. So, is this similar to if you have a fire in your home? the fire department shows up at your front door and they do what they do. They don't break out a book to tell them what to do. Exactly. That's what you're talking about. You got it. You got it. Okay. So without the BIA, how are you understanding dependencies, criticality, uh, priorities, and things like that? How do you, how do you define what's important to the business? Um, so two things. So I, I think there's value in have, understanding dependencies, right? If, if you lose resources, well, what do you lose as a result? When we talk about criticality and priorities, I think that's one of the fundamental problems I have with the business impact assessment is one of the things we've learned coming out of COVID. And, and if, if you look at a lot of the research and what we've learned in past events is the things that we define as a priority and critical when the sun is shining, the lights are green, everything's humming along perfectly, are not the priorities that we that we need to focus on when things go south. Um, COVID is the perfect example. Um, you know, it's if we were focused, let's, let's use restaurants as an example. If your focus is how am I going to deliver food to people sitting at a table and deliver good service that way, then you've already put yourself behind when responding to that event because that was no longer a priority. It was how am I going to get food to people in cars? How am I going to deliver it to their homes? Things of that nature. Um, am, am I allowed to mention other podcasts? Sure, of course. Here? Yeah, hundred okay. percent. So there's a really good episode on a podcast called "The Failover Plan" podcast by an individual named Shane Matthew. Excellent individual. If you haven't had him on the show, I would strongly advocate you All reach right. out to him. There's an episode of that podcast um, in which he interviews a CEO of an organization and their response to COVID. And one of the things they did, because of course, like everybody else, their business was suffering. It was a jewelry jewelry manufacturer, and they had this they had this small product that was kind of like a, a do your own build your own jewelry 
product. And they, of course, had lost their ability to send people into manufacturing facilities to assemble this. This is the only product they had. And it was a little niche service or product that they provided. Before COVID, if they had said, you know what, this isn't very important. Let's focus on how we're going to get finished jewelry to people. They, again, would have been in a worse position when COVID came along. Instead, they had the wherewithal to think, you know what, we have this. People are sitting at home. Is this the product that we could focus on? Sure enough, that became their biggest seller following COVID. So I think when we so often focus on what's critical during the good times, we lose the ability to innovate and take advantage of the opportunities that may be in those less critical services or products when when it's critical and necessary during those disruptive events. All right, that's fair enough. So maybe we need to tailor a little bit, maybe some of the questions that we asked during the BIA, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, I would, I would agree. I agree. I think, I think there is some value in the work that's done as part of the business impact assessment. And here's another issue that I have is we wrap it in this very, I think, cumbersome process um, when we could just use the terms that people already outside the business continuity profession are familiar with and see the value of like dependency mapping, right? Um, mm-hmm. th- things of that nature, uh, value stream mapping, things things like that. So if we if we simply break it down into its component parts and focus on the stuff that does deliver value, I think we put ourselves in a bit in a better position. I hadn't planned on asking you this, but I think I remember something from a comment that was made uh, a while ago that the impact rating the impact part of the BIA was something that you're really not a fan of. Correct. Correct. I, as soon as we, as soon as we think that we can predict the consequences or impact of an outage or an event, we we've already lost the, the, we've already lost the battle and potentially the war because, because resilience and business kind of preparedness is really about how do we deal with the unintended or unforeseen consequences of events. All right. So in adaptive, you don't have a methodology. You're not doing BIAs. You're not even writing plans. We're crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> see, there's something else we agree on. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm just messing with you. But listen, so we'll walk me through that then. How are we? So I'm not even sure how you're collecting appropriate information, but let's just assume uh, it's a big assumption, but let's just assume that we, that, that you're there, that you understand what's important to the business. How are you communicating actions then if you don't have a plan and you said you're, how did you phrase it? You said you're, you're creating capability, not plans. How are you creating that capability? So, so first I, w- I wouldn't define it as creating capability. The capability already okay. exists. Um, my my foundational role is to help people understand what capability looks like today. And then through that, I can have conversations with the decision makers and say, here's the capability we have to, to deal with these types of events. Maybe it's a loss of facilities, maybe it's a loss of IT, loss of staff or, or infrastructure. Here's the level of confidence I have based on the capabilities we have today. Is that satisfactory? If it's not, then let's have a discussion about what kind of investments we want to make, what kind of actions we want to take. Um, and this, this again, is is where I'm not a fan of, of adhering to a life cycle because the solutions that improve upon capabilities are going to vary quite drastically. In some cases, yeah, we might have to we might have to procure resources 
to help us respond and recover. Um, and that's a process in and of itself, right? It's getting justification, getting the budget, approving the budget, and then procuring that that resource. And then we and then there's a the whole process of where are we going to stage that resource? How are we going to obtain that resource when the time arises? Mm-hmm. And then there's other things we can do, but maybe the capability, maybe we can improve capability through training, through practice and exercise. Maybe we can improve capability <clears throat> through what I call empowerment um, or delegated authority. Maybe the problem is. We've got the resources, people are well-trained, but the person on the ground, if they lose communication with the decision makers, they have no ability to obtain those resources or mobilize those resources. And we need to grant them the explicit authority to be able to make those decisions and sign those checks when the, when the time comes. And each of those are completely different things that we can do, but they require completely different actions to, to see them through. Is the common common component between traditional BC and an adaptive BC uh, training and exercise. Is that something that you see is in both? Uh, if there's any commonality, that would probably, that would probably be it. I think, I think where the difference is, right. Is that I think in traditional business continuity, it's all done at the end. And, and I know people have come around to, we call it an exercise or a practice. We don't call it a test, but where it sits in the life cycle, it's traditionally perceived as a test. Um, and there's still this perception that, well, if you don't achieve all of the all of the objectives we, we defined up front, it's a failure. I would much rather put it at the front. But let's exercise. And through that, we have an understanding of what our capabilities are and a better understanding of, well, what could we do or what steps could we take to improve? And then we further practice to familiarize ourselves with what we now have and maybe what's changed in the interim. I'm really irritated because I agreed with that last sentence, too. And <laughs> <laughs> You're st- don't, 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 don't be, don't be irritated. This happens so often. People are like, you know, I think, I think I'm, I'm an ad, I'm an advocate for adaptive business cutting. Most people I didn't say that. I'm not it. going that far because okay. I think that there's some, st- still some very serious problems with it. But the, the part that I agreed with is when you said we call it an exercise or a practice or a rehearsal, not a test. I never like to use testing. The only time I'll use the phrase or the word testing in anything like this is if we're attempting a disaster recovery test where we want to try to recover an application within an RTO, which you probably don't have in your world to determine how quickly we need to recover. Um, and it, it either worked or it didn't. Uh, but yep. business I, I would, continuity, I mean, crisis I, management, things like that, it's, it's more of an exercise. Go ahead. Sorry. Agreed. agreed. I mean, and I would say I, I separate technology recovery from business continuity yeah. or resilience because technology recovery is really about restoration of a resource or restoration of a service. So you, that needs to be a little bit more defined and, and probably planned. So Sure. I think one of the other things that, that drives you around the bend a little bit is the inconsistency in definitions. Uh, you talk yes. about that uh, in, in an article that you wrote that I read not too long ago. And then I would assume, uh, like your thoughts on this, that this whole introduction of operational resilience and the phrase uh, or or even the word resilience in general is probably making those definitions even more murky. Would you agree with that? I would. I would I would say I'll say the 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 problem is even more foundational and probably more important than anybody realizes. And and I'm gonna kind of give you the outsider's perspective here as as only a, a contrarian like myself could. Um let, let me first by say by stating, I think a lot of people feel like we're not speaking the same language. As an outsider, 
the perspective I have is everybody speaking the same language. It's the wrong language. And I would I would describe that by saying, um, when we talk about resilience, I, I hear a lot of people saying it's the ability to respond and recover. It's it's the the capability to um, deal with unforeseen situations and adapt to changes as a result of those those types of events. This kind of sets this perspective, then that that establishes resilience as a state to be achieved. Right. Until we've done X, Y, and Z, we are not quote unquote resilient. And that we wanted what we want, what we desire is to quote unquote be resilient. I I think that's the wrong perspective. I I think we're all resilient. We're all just resilient to varying degrees and in greater degrees relative relative to others in different contexts. Um, the example I will give, <laughs> I love using analogies. Um is my wife will tell me she can't throw a football. And I'll, I'll, I'll say, well, you, you can, you can hold a football in your hand and you can, you can move your arm forward and release the ball. Um, what she doesn't currently have the capability to do is throw that football with the force and the accuracy necessary to land it in the arms of a receiver 20 yards downfield. Right. And, and I think, when we say you can't throw a football, we all have that same image of you can't throw it that well, but we have to understand it's a progression from you can throw a football, but it's just going to bounce around five feet in front of you to, yes, you can throw a football 20 yards downfield. To okay, a, to but a I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back there. Aren't you being a little bit pedantic? Because you know what she means when she says she can't throw a football. She means I can't throw a football well. In, in that context, yes, but but what I'm talking about is we need to change our view of resilience. As soon as mm -hmm. we start thinking of resilience as a state to be achieved, we're already in a compliance-driven mindset because our, our, our perspective now is I want to achieve that state. What actions do I want to take in order to get there? Okay, explain think, what you mean. What's, so what's the problem with being in a compliance-driven state? Because uh, Goodhart's law tells us that um, any any measure once it once it becomes a target becomes an ineffective metric, and we, and we this is you may be familiar with this analogy right it's it's the call center that strives to take more calls an hour so they they change the metric to say well five calls an hour is no longer acceptable you have to achieve ten calls an hour. Mm -hmm. The result of which is you have a lot more dissatisfied customers. So even though you're taking more calls, the, the, the fact that people are incentivized to get off the phone quicker means they aren't resolving the customer's issue. And, and resilience is the exact same way. As soon as we say you must do X, Y, and Z, meaning you must demonstrate that you've completed a business impact assessment, you must show us your business continuity plans. As soon as we do that, the rest of it suddenly becomes, in my view, and from what I've seen, the rest of it becomes secondary. And the primary focus becomes simply demonstrating adherence to or conformity to the to the process or satisfaction of the regulations or the requirements. It's a checkbox at that point. Exactly. Exactly. So, and in my, my view, the way to get out of that checkbox thinking is to no longer think of it as a state to be achieved, but an improvement of where you currently stand. You know, we, 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 the traditional approach to business kind of is you define these objectives, these far off objectives, and then you kind of march towards those objectives. I would much rather understand, well, where do I currently sit and, and 
instead of defining where where I want to go ultimately, what's going to put me in a better position than I stand today? Mark, wh- one of the things I want to ask you is, and we're not talking about any company in you know in particular, but coming out of the regulations around operational resilience in the UK and the financial industry, you know the the regulators wanted to see proof or demonstration of the capability uh, mm-hmm. of the various organizations. We're seeing a lot more of that too in North America, where customers are asking for uh, proof or demonstration that a company has good business continuity capability. Yeah. What have you seen from organizations that have used Adaptive BC to be able to satisfy those customer requests? Two things. Um, first and foremost, clear demonstrated ability that they're focused on those capabilities and that actions taking place to improve capabilities. And then their piece is, is the outcome. So whenever an event has come along, um, be it COVID, be it a power outage, a technology outage, that there is demonstrated ability to be able to respond and recover effectively. And I, I think when we when we talk about like auditors and regulators, I, I think there's a tendency, not just in business continuity or resilience. I see this in lots of organizations and lots of lots of functions, an unwillingness to a push back and be seek clarification. I think too often assessors and regulators have that checkbox. But if we if we seek to better understand, okay, your checkbox is there to help you validate or verify that a certain capability exists, right? It's written in such a way to demonstrate you you're conforming with the methodology. Um, but if you if you look at the underlying outcome or deliverable that's that's seeking there's other ways to satisfy it right without simply a bunch of a bunch of documents and materials that again going back to good hearts law may not actually improve your current capabilities but simply checks those boxes so I, I might need to have you back because we didn't get to quite a few things that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, so maybe we'll, uh, as we maybe get into 2024, we'll, we'll look for another opportunity to bring you back and we'll do part two of this where we can, um, you know, continue our conversation. And uh, I've really enjoyed this, but I always call this next one, oh. the hardest question for my guests. Now you're a musician. This might not be that difficult for you, but if you had a theme song that was played when you walked into a room, or maybe when you walked up on stage to speak, what would that song be? And why? <laughs> um, that song, probably no surprise to you, Mark, uh, would be "Crazy" by Gnarls Barkley. <laughs> uh, okay. and, and you know, maybe, maybe it's because I'm out there without care. I'm out of touch. <laughs> but first and foremost, it's a good song. I really, really enjoy this song. But I, you know, when I listen to the lyrics, it kind of sums up a lot of how I feel about about resilience. There is a great line that, again, it's it's. Heck, I should I should post it everywhere. Maybe it should be in my signature. And it's it's simply this: um, bless your soul. You think you're in control. You know, I, I was thinking about this for you, um, and I had two <laughs> songs. Okay, um, and, and and nothing to do with with crazy. Um, mm-hmm. The first one was it's an old Dave Mason song called "We Just Disagree." Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know that one. There, there ain't no good guys. There ain't Can't no bad guys. There's just you and me, and we we just disagree. And then the other one that came to mind was one you said at the beginning of this episode, and it's the Fleetwood Mac song, You Can Go Your Own Way. 
and there's uh, nothing wrong with uh, choosing <laughs> a different path and you didn't want to get on the bus with the rest of us and you can go your own way and there's nothing wrong with that exactly exactly yep mark i've enjoyed this um this has been enlightening um it's interesting. My wife tells me this all the time that when you put things in writing, like in an email or in a post or, or something like that, you don't really get to convey sort of the the spirit of how you mean what you're saying. And I think I've misinterpreted you over the years. Um, and so having a chance to see you face to face and to chat with you, uh, I've learned a little bit more about where you're coming from, and I appreciate it. Uh, I don't good to, good to agree hear. with a lot of what you say. But clearly, over the last 30 minutes, I have agreed with bits and pieces and, and morsels of things that you've said. So uh, I appreciate you doing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really, really good to be here. To be here. I appreciate the questions. And, uh, and yeah, if we get a chance to do it again, I think it'd be great. Yeah, I think you should come back and we should continue the conversation. What's the best way for people to connect with you, Mark? Um, first and foremost, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Just look yep. up Mark Armour, A-R-M-O-U-R. Um, you'll, you'll find me particularly if you're in any of the preparedness disciplines. I'm sure I'm, I'm only a connection or two away. And I always like to give out my personal email. Uh, it's M-N-J, like Mark Nancy Julie. My last name, Armour, A-R-M-O-U-R at gmail.com. Good. Mark, thank you for doing this. I appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thanks, Mark. The Resilient Journey podcast is a resilience think tank production. And I want to thank Mark Armour for being my guest today and coming on and having an honest and friendly debate over something that we disagree on. And uh, it, was, uh, it was great to have the conversation with him, and I appreciate him being here. Next week is special. Next week is the Resilient Journey's 100th episode, and it's a special tribute to September 11th. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. There was something so pleasant about that place. Even your emotions have an echo and so much space.